Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. This episode was intended to be released before Halloween, so you could all enjoy it and get into the spirit, but I guess releasing it on the actual day is close enough. We're going to cover the sometimes frightening history of the rise and fall of the lobotomy as a procedure to treat mental disorders. Of course, we'll cover the developments that led to the rise of the lobotomy and meet some of the physicians involved. I hesitate to say surgeons, and you'll see why. And in keeping with the theme, we'll delve a bit into the history of zombies, which is how some of these poor lobotomized patients were described. All that and more in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Before we begin, I want to warn listeners that some descriptions of operations in this episode can be a bit graphic and may upset some listeners. If you are concerned, maybe skip past those parts, and I'll try to give you a warning, and enjoy the rest of the episode. Or, if you are worried that you might accidentally hear something upsetting, then skip the whole episode and we'll see you for the next one. Okay, one term frequently used in the literature on this subject that I've not seen anywhere else is psychosurgery. This encompasses any and all operations done with the intent to alter the mind rather than simply cure the brain. The term itself was coined by Dr. Egas Moniz, whom we'll meet later on, but the concept dates back to pre-recorded history. In fact, the oldest recorded surgical procedure is trepanation, which is drilling a hole in the skull. This dates back to the Stone Age, with evidence in both the Old World and the New, particularly in Peru. Amazingly, many of these skulls show healing, meaning these patients survive the operation. And while we can only speculate why it was done in pre-recorded history, there is literature dating back to 1500 BCE that this was used to relieve suffering from neuropsychiatric syndromes. Although the thinking at that time was that it would release the evil spirits, rather than based on any understanding of neuroanatomy and physiology. So let's skip ahead to the time period that we've been considering the modern era of surgery, or at least for the purposes of this show, and consider the state of mental health care. Now, there were no psychiatric medications available, and so there was a movement to provide institutionalized care in what became known as lunatic asylums, the most famous of which was the Bethlehem Royal Hospital in London, England. This was also known as St. Mary Bethlehem and Bethlehem Hospital, which actually dates back to 1247 CE. Even from its beginning, the intent was that it would be an institution for the insane rather than a traditional hospital. It developed the popular nickname Bedlam, and yes, that is indeed where the word Bedlam, meaning a scene of uproar and confusion, comes from. So you can imagine what conditions were like there. Now, these patients were often treated like criminals, some locked up in chains. In fact, people would go on tours of asylums for entertainment. At one time, it only cost a shilling to see the beasts rave at Bedlam. Now, if you recall from way back in episode 3, Dr. Semmelweis, who brought us hand-washing, actually died from injuries sustained in a madhouse when he was tricked into being admitted there. But, for lack of any other real options, the number of patients in these asylums grew throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries. By the late 1890s, England and France had hundreds of thousands of these institutions. And to put it in further perspective, in 1937, over 400,000 patients lived in approximately 477 American psychiatric institutes. Over half the hospital beds in the U.S. were used by psychiatric patients, and by the 1940s, over 1.5 billion U.S. was spent to treat mental illness. As you can imagine, as the situation worsened, the search for treatments became desperate and extreme. The Austrian psychiatrist Julius Wagner Jurig won the Nobel Prize in 1927 for his use of malarial therapy to treat dementia paralytica, or what we'd now call neurosyphilis, an infection of the central nervous system. He believed in something called pyrotherapy, which was to induce fevers, 
in this case by intentionally infecting patients with malaria, to treat mental illness caused by syphilis infection. Now, while the mortality for this was around 15%, it was the only effective therapy for patients with neurosyphilis. Of course, this was then tried on mental illnesses not caused by infection, but with no success. Other treatments included insulin shock therapy, intentionally inducing seizures with either medication or electricity, and other horrible things. But we're here to talk about a surgical cure for psychiatric illness, the lobotomy. Let's begin with the German physiologist Friedrich Goltz, who lived from 1834 to 1902. Now, he performed ablations, or destruction of what is called the neocortex part of the brain in dogs. He observed changes in their behavior as he described, quote, I've mentioned that dogs with a large lesion in the anterior part of the brain generally show a change in character in the sense that they become excited and quite apt to become irate. Dogs with large lesions of the occipital lobe, on the other hand, become sweet and harmless, even when they were quite nasty before, end quote. Goltz's experiment inspired the physician Gottlieb Burkhardt, who was the director of a small asylum in Brafargier, Switzerland, to try this on humans. He performed the first psychosurgical procedures of the common era in 1888 in six patients with auditory hallucinations and other symptoms of schizophrenia. He removed small amounts of cerebral cortex, which is part of the brain, from a number of regions, including the frontal, parietal, and temporal lobes, using a sharp spoon or a graves knife. Of the six, three did improve, but one died within a week of the procedure, and another committed suicide later on. Although Burkhardt published his results in 1891, his experiments were not well received by his colleagues, and he abandoned this line of research. The next stage in the progression of lobotomies was when the Yale neuroscientist John Fulton and his colleague Carlisle Jacobson performed lobotomy-like procedures on chimpanzees. They found that frontal and prefrontal cortical damage in chimps led to a massive reduction in aggression, while complete removal of the frontal cortex led to the inability to induce experimental neuroses in the animals. Now, these findings were presented at a frontal lobe symposium in London, England in 1935. In the audience was a Portuguese neurologist named Igaz Moniz. Now remember, this was the one who coined the term psychosurgery, which he would do later. And he asked the Yale researchers if the surgical procedure would be beneficial for people with otherwise untreatable psychoses. The researchers were shocked by the question, but Moniz would operate on his first patient three months later. Before we get to that, let's take a minute to meet Dr. Moniz. He was born November 19, 1874, in a coastal village in Portugal on the estate that had belonged to his aristocratic family for 500 years. His birth name was Antonio Caetano de Abreu Freire Monez, but his godfather nicknamed him Igaz. As a young adult, Igaz was heavily involved in politics, in addition to practicing neurology. He eventually became a professor at the University of Lisbon Medical School and left politics in 1926 at the age of 51 due to a let's call it government change, allowing him to devote more time to research. Now, some of his initial work was with the injection of radio-opaque dyes into brain arteries, creating the first true cerebral angiogram. He was assisted by a young neurosurgeon named Almeida Lima, who will be a part of his later work, as Moniz suffered from deforming gouty arthritis in his hands and could not perform the procedures himself. Now, after presenting his research in 1927, Moniz was twice nominated for a Nobel Prize, in fact, many feel that this work, which we still use to this day, is more important than that which earned him the Nobel Prize, and we'll get to that later. By the 1930s, Moniz was focused on what he described as, quote, the removal of malignant ideas rather than of malignant tumor, end quote, from the brain. 
While Moniz later claimed that he had been contemplating this idea before, certainly the presentation of the research in Chimps in 1935 spurred him to action. Okay, this is your first warning about a described surgery. On November 12, 1935, Moniz and Lima performed for the first time what they would call a prefrontal leucotomy, literally cutting white matter, on a female depressive patient. She was first anesthetized, and holes were drilled in either side of the skull. Through these holes, a solution of absolute alcohol was injected into the white matter beneath the frontal area of the brain. The procedure took 30 minutes, and Moniz afterwards reported that the patient seemed less anxious and paranoid, pronouncing it a success. Now, the idea behind this was to sever the bundles of nerve fibers connecting the frontal cortex and the thalamus. The thalamus, from the ancient Greek thalamos, meaning inner chamber or bedroom, sits below the cortex and relays sensory information to it. The simplified version of the theory was that severing the neural connections would uncouple the brain's emotional center, the thalamus, and the seat of intellect, the frontal cortex. By 1936, Moniz reported a case series of 20 patients who underwent the procedure for severe disorders of mood. 35% experienced complete relief of mental disturbance, 35% benefited from leucotomy but did not experience complete relief, and 30% did not improve. Moniz and Lima moved on from their initial technique, uh, again, here's a warning, uh, and began to use a specially designed wire knife, which they called a leucotome, inserted through the holes in the skull. This had an open steel loop for its end, and when rotated, the loop would create a circular lesion within the brain. Now remember, this is all being done blind, meaning the operator cannot see where they're cutting. Moniz reported success in patients with conditions such as depression, schizophrenia, panic disorder, and mania. But, as Moniz and Lima continued to accumulate cases, complications began to pile up, with side effects such as increased temperature, vomiting, bladder and bowel incontinence, eye problems, apathy, lethargy, and abnormal hunger. Now, some of these sound a little bit like the features of zombies, right? Now hold on, we'll come back to that later. Now because of this, the medical community did start to become critical of the procedure, yet the leucotomy, as it was still called at this point, began to be used around the world. In particular, Walter Freeman and James Watts would bring it to America to great infamy. But before we cover that, let's wrap up the story on Moniz. In 1949, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was divided equally between Walter Rudolf Hess, a Swiss physiologist, for, quote, his discovery of the functional organization of the interbrain as a coordinator of the activities of the internal organs, end quote, and to Antonio Moniz for, quote, his discovery of the therapeutic value of leucotomy in certain psychoses, end quote. In that same year, Moniz was shot four times by one of his schizophrenic patients, not one who had been lobotomized. One bullet entered his spine, leaving him confined to a wheelchair. The bullet remained lodged there until his death in 1955. Now let's profile the doctor that would launch the lobotomy into fame, Walter Freeman. Of interest, his grandfather, William Williams Keene, was a pioneer in American neurosurgery and performed the first resection of a primary brain tumor in the U.S. in 1897. Walter Freeman would attend the University of Pennsylvania for medical school and do his neurology training at the University Hospital in Philadelphia. Note, not a surgical specialty. Early in his training, Freeman demonstrated signs of what would become his trademark showmanship and personality. As a trainee, he was assigned to treat a young man with a metal ring wrapped around his penis. Freeman removed the ring with forceps, and the patient requested it back. Freeman told him it was kept as a surgical specimen, when in fact Freeman repaired the ring engraved it with his family crest, and wore it on a gold chain for many years. 
Later, he would be known for keeping memorabilia related to each patient that he treated with lobotomy. Freeman began work at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., a well-regarded institution for the insane. While working there, he used some unconventional interventions for patients with schizophrenia and depression, including administering sodium amytal, a sedative, manipulating oxygen levels, and even using the cisternal tap, which involves sticking a needle under the base of the skull. Freeman called it the Jiffy Spinal Tap, which his colleagues criticized him for using. Later, Freeman would host popular weekend autopsies for students, which frequently involved audience participation and theatrical demonstrations. He even began dressing with a distinctive style, including a wide-brimmed hat, long goatee, round-rimmed glasses, and he carried a cane and wore his engraved ring around his neck. I'll put a picture on Twitter. Freeman preferred actively treating patients with whatever means necessary rather than, as one paper put it, succumbing to therapeutic nihilism rampant at the time. And in fact, considering the burden of patients in psychiatric hospitals, the allure of a cure through surgery was obviously attractive. Freeman had been following Moniz's work carefully and had also attended the same frontal lobe symposium in London mentioned earlier. In that year, 1935, he recruited a neurosurgeon named James Watts to join his practice at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Together, they refined the technique used by Moniz and changed the name to lobotomy, emphasizing that it was both white and gray matter being destroyed and to distinguish it from Moniz's operation. This became known as the Freeman-Watts Standard Procedure, or the precision method, and involved inserting a blunt spatula-like instrument through holes in both sides of the skull and moving the instrument up and down to sever the thalamocortical fibers mentioned earlier. On September 4, 1936, at George Washington University, Freeman and Watts performed the first lobotomy in the U.S. on Alice Hood Hammett, a woman diagnosed with agitated depression. She attempted to withdraw her consent the night before the operation due to concerns about her head being shaved prior to the surgery so Freeman told her he would not shave her head. On the day of the operation, she continued to resist, and she struggled while she underwent sedation and general anesthesia. When Ms. Hammett awoke, she stated that she was happy and did not mind that Freeman had shaved her head. By 1942, Freeman and Watts had done 200 frontal lobotomies. They published their first major case series, stating 63% of patients improved, 23% showed no change, and 14% of patients suffered severe postoperative deficits or death. The next stage in the lobotomy was inspired by the Italian psychiatrist Amaro Fiamberti, who first developed a procedure that involved accessing the frontal lobes through the eye sockets. Freeman would take this approach to develop the transorbital lobotomy in 1945 in a method that would not require a trained surgeon nor operating room and would be less time-consuming and messy. So here's another official warning. This part is a bit graphic. Now the technique involved used the use of an orbitoclast, which was a modified ice pick-like instrument. He initially used an actual ice pick from a drawer in his kitchen. Now this instrument would be inserted through the patient's eye socket using a mallet, then moved from side to side to separate the frontal lobes from the thalamus, then repeated through the other eye socket. The patient would be rendered unconscious by a portable electroshock machine first, and the whole thing would take 10 minutes. Freeman's decision to perform a prefrontal lobotomy without neurosurgical assistance was criticized. Many in the medical field were horrified by the lack of typical surgical principles. The procedure was done outside of the OR, with no ability to manage complications, there was a lack of sterile technique, and Freeman did not even wear surgical gloves. 
He often performed lobotomies in his Washington, D.C. office, much to the horror of Watts, who would later dissociate himself from his former colleague and the procedure. Moniz, too, would remove himself from any association with Freeman. But this did not stop the self-promoting Freeman, who would travel the U.S. doing multiple lobotomies a day. One urban legend has that he rode around in a vehicle he called the lobotomobile. That's a pretty clever term. Freeman encouraged reporters to cover him, and he deliberately tried to shock observers by performing two-handed lobotomies, one in each eye socket, or performing the operation in a production line manner. Freeman once lobotomized 25 women in a single day. He taught psychiatrists how to do it, with no experience in surgery, dramatically increasing the number of patients who would be treated this way. Overall, about 50,000 lobotomies were performed in the U.S., with Freeman personally performing somewhere between 3,500 to 5,000 of them. Now, while a small percentage of patients improved, most did not. And complications included intracranial hemorrhage, epilepsy, alterations in affect and personality, brain abscesses, dementia, and death. Freeman himself began to have some well-publicized complications. In one instance, he posed for a photograph during a transorbital lobotomy case, and the orbital class diverged from its intended path. The patient hemorrhaged and died immediately. On December 16, 1960, Freeman performed a transorbital lobotomy on a 12-year-old boy named Howard Dully at the behest of Howard's stepmother, who had grown tired of his defiant behavior. He survived but was permanently disabled from the operation. In fact, Freeman operated on 19 minors, the youngest of which was just four years old. And one source stated that 40% of his patients were gay, and the lobotomy was done to try to change their orientation, disabling healthy individuals for life. Freeman's final patient, Helen Mortensen, died three days after her operation in 1967. It was the third lobotomy he had done on her. Freeman was then banned from performing surgery. Clearly, the indications for lobotomy had begun to expand, and one famous case was Rosemary Kennedy, sister to JFK. She had suffered from developmental disabilities since birth. The delivering doctor was not immediately available, so the nurse told her mother to keep her legs closed and the baby inside until the doctor arrived. An alternate version of this story has the nurse physically holding the baby back from delivering. Rosemary's head stayed inside the birth canal for two hours, depriving her of oxygen and leaving her disabled for life. Initially, she showed mild developmental delays that impaired her performance at school, but as she grew older, Rosemary became more anxious and agitated and prone to seizures and violent outbursts. In 1941, when Rosemary was 23 years old, her father Joseph took her to see Freeman. He performed a lobotomy, which caused her to lose the use of one arm and one leg. Her speech became unintelligible, and she had the mental capacity of a two-year-old. Rosemary spent the next 60 years of her life in an institution. Now, the poor outcomes like this began to make an impression on the public zeitgeist, and there was a perception that psychosurgery was being used as a tool for wielding power over mentally ill patients, eliminating management problems on psychiatric wards and mental institutions. This was most famously portrayed by Jack Nicholson in the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where he plays a patient in a mental institution who encourages other patients to rebel. He clashed with the abusive medical staff, most famously Nurse Ratched, and then was subjected to an involuntary lobotomy. Spoiler alert there. When his character returns to the ward, he has a blank expression and scars on his forehead. The impression of lobotomies turned into a belief that it would rob patients of their autonomy, stripping them of their individuality and turning them into zombies. Okay, let's take a minute to talk about the history of zombies in the spirit of Halloween and because it's fun. 
Now, the word zombie is speculated to have come from West African languages. Nzumbi means corpse in the Mitsogo language of Gabon, and Nzambi means spirit of a dead person in the Congo language. The modern idea of zombies is thought to come from the folklore of Haiti, possibly originating from when West African slaves were brought to work the sugarcane fields. In the 17th and 18th centuries, it was known as Saint-Domingue and was ruled by France. Slavery was brutal, with half the slaves brought in from Africa worked to death within a few years. The Haitian slave believed that the voodoo deity Baron Samdi would gather the dead from their graves to bring them to a heavenly afterlife in Africa, unless they had offended him in some way, in which case they would be condemned to skulk the plantations for eternity, an undead slave trapped in their own bodies. Now, this idea was folded into the folklore of the island, in which corpses could be reanimated by the bokor, or witch doctors. It was believed the bokor could render their victims apparently dead, either through magic, hypnotic suggestion, or even a secret potion, and then revive them as their personal slaves, since their soul or will had been captured, making the zombie a slave, trapped in a living death of unending labor. A number of sources suggest that the zombie is a reflection of the anxieties of slavery that remained in the Haitian culture. Now, there was a slave rebellion in 1791, and the newly freed slaves renamed their island Haiti, and it became the first independent black republic following a long revolutionary war in 1804. The European empires found this threatening and so demonized Haiti with reports of cannibalism, human sacrifice, and mystical rites, adding to the mystique around the zombie legend. In 1915, America occupied Haiti and tried to destroy the native religion of voodoo, which only further reinforced its dark image. American occupation ended in 1934, but brought back the superstition of the zombie to the U.S. It's no coincidence that the first zombie movie was in 1932, called White Zombie. The cult classic Night of the Living Dead in 1968 pushed zombies to the forefront, and they continue to capture our imaginations to this day. My personal favorite is Shaun of the Dead. And the U.S. government is taking advantage of this popularity, too. The Center for Disease Control created a zombie preparedness website to motivate people to prepare for disasters. Okay, enough about zombies. Back to our regularly scheduled program. Now, given this negative perception, the lobotomy began to fall out of favor, which was hurried by the arrival of psychiatric medications. In 1955, chlorpromazine was approved for use in the U.S., and more medications continued to become available, eliminating the need for psychosurgery. It's an interesting story arc where the initial idea was well-intended as lobotomy was trying to provide a way to relieve the heavy burden of a significant public health crisis. But it overreached, no longer following the principles of surgery or really of good medical practice, with an unsafe procedure and unproven indications becoming something of a joke in the public eye. I remember as a kid, one of my grandfather's favorite sayings was, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. I'd never given much thought to it, but that saying came from somewhere and reflects that fear of being turned into a zombie against your will. Now, the transorbital lobotomy is no longer performed, but in an era of evidence-based medicine, some modern neurosurgical techniques provide safe and effective treatment for refractory psychiatric disorders. So the history of psychosurgery has certainly undergone some twists and turns, but perhaps is not quite over, and may in fact be in a sort of renaissance when approached with a proper scientific method. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we're going back to the era just before anesthesia, where speed was a virtue in surgery, to cover one of the fastest surgeons around, Robert Liston. 
Now, unfortunately, the speed led him to have the only known operation with a 300% mortality rate. I'll explain more, so tune in. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>